But we're in First Timothy chapter 5 this morning. Last night, I was, um, it was actually Amy, uh, Kimberly and I were sitting on the couch in the family room, and I was watching a series that was released about a year ago called Hillsong Exposed. I don't know, have you seen it, Dustin? Um, I've only seen the first episode. Um, I can't even find episode two anywhere. Um, it's like they pulled it, and then episode three is going to be shown again this week, and then episode four after that. But it's about um, sort of what's happened with Hillsong in New York, and um, it it was fascinating. In fact, I didn't. I was just watching it for myself. It was my birthday. I figured I can watch whatever I want. So that's what I had. And next thing you know, Kimberly's sitting there engrossed in it. And she didn't want to leave, and Amy was sitting on the couch, and um, it was fascinating. I've been familiar with much of what's gone on with that, but. You, you might have heard me mention a few weeks back that I had been reading through a book um, called Counterfeit Kingdom, which focuses on something called the New Apostolic Reformation and Hillsong and Bethel and a lot of um, churches are now kind of engaged in this, this movement where um, some of these leaders almost become somewhat cult-like. Just this last week I was reading an article written by a pastor, and it was a fairly decent article, but the way he signed it was apostolic leader of his church. And that's right out of the New Apostolic Reformation. It's that he's an apostle. And um, so it was interesting watching this stuff last night because it was creepy, it was fascinating, it was extremely disturbing, but it was primarily about Carl Lentz. If you remember, he was Justin Bieber's pastor, and he had a fairly significant fall from grace um, a couple years ago. And um, we'll get into some of that a little bit here. And I, I don't, I, I'm not going to mention some of these, these folks as a way of disparaging them as much as trying to give some context to what we're going to talk about this morning. And so we'll, we'll do some of that. And I, and I have to tread very lightly because... Um, I think it's important to, uh, I'll say, point fingers as examples, again, not to disparage, but so that we have context. And anytime you do that from the pulpit, you want to try to be careful. And so I'm going to mention some names this morning as we go through some things, some people you might be familiar with. Um, as primarily some context, because what we're going to talk about this morning is not so much the qualifications for elders, but Paul is challenging Timothy once again as it comes to elders within the church. And there are four principles that he shares with Timothy. And we find those in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And it begins with compensation and respect. So we're going we're gonna to do that. There's basically four principles we're going to go through here. In verses 17 through 18, he addresses rewarding elders financially and with um, respect. In verse 19, he provides instructions on how to deal with accusations of sin against elders, primarily false accusations in that verse. In verses 20 uh, through 21, he provides instructions on how to deal with elders who refuse to repent when they are guilty of sin. And then lastly, in verses 22 through 25, he cautions against appointing elders too hastily. So really what Paul is going to do today is he's going to say, okay, we already talked about the qualifications for elders. I've got some additional things for you, Timothy. And he's using these things to challenge Timothy One, in and of himself, but also in who he appoints. And he gives us some guidelines, again, as to um, the kind of people we should financially reward for their work within the church, but also 
how to handle accusations against them, whether false or true, and then needing to be very, very careful who it is that we allow to shepherd God's church. So we're going to look at those four things this morning. Let's look at the first one, verses 17 through 18 of chapter 5. Let me read those. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So right out of the gate, Paul tells Timothy that elders should be worthy of double honor when they rule well. Now, if you remember, this word honor has been used multiple times so far by Paul. He used it in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, when he was referring to widows. The word has two primary meanings. There's, there's other nuances to it, but there's two primary meanings to this word in the Bible. And it probably, at, the, at its root, refers to honoring or respecting. Giving somebody honor or to respect them, much like the English word, Right? The second meaning is to provide financial provision, and Paul uses it that way when he's talking about the widows, and we talked about that, was it last week or the week before? Here, in this particular verse, I believe Paul is using it in both senses. He's using it in regard to respect, but he's also using it in regard to financial provision, and part of the reason I believe that is because of this interesting phrase, double honor. Now generally, and and maybe you've heard this before, oftentimes this phrase double honor when it comes to elders is used to say that they should be paid very well. They should receive double honor. I think that's probably a misunderstanding of the passage because when you look at the way that this, this word for doubly is used elsewhere in that, it appears that what Paul is really doing with this is he's saying they're really... um, deserving of two kinds of honor. Double honor. Not just respect, but financial. And so the word actually is not getting at, oh, you should probably pay your pastors twice what the going market rate is. There are many within the NAR movement that believe that. And they're building mansions, and they're getting paid significant sums of money because we're worthy of double honor. Well, that's not really the point of Paul's comments here. Double means that they're worthy of two kinds of honor. The respect but also financial provision. When it comes to respect, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 starting in verse 12. But we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. You notice that the emphasis there is that they are to be esteemed. They're to be given honor. They're to be thought of very highly because of the work that they do. That obviously is not a reference to finances, but a reference to giving them respect. Thinking highly of them for what they do. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, look at verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So he says here to remember those who led you. Jump down into verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. 
So we have established in the scriptures this idea that those who labor specifically in the word ought to be given respect, ought to be thought of highly, ought to be esteemed for the work that they do. That's the way that we ought to think about elders who serve, who serve well. Now what about financial provision? Go back to chapter 5 of First Timothy, dumped down into verse 18. It says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So clearly in this context, Paul is also talking about wages or financial compensation for elders. The first quote is from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It refers to the Old Testament requirement that when you have your ox out there doing what the ox is supposed to do, you're supposed to allow him to eat whatever he wants. You can't smack him and say, stop eating it, that's for me, you just do your work. The ox is to be permitted to eat whatever he wants while he's working. The second quote is from Jesus in Luke chapter 10. It's a close parallel to what Paul is teaching. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. This is an interesting one. Luke chapter 10. This is when Jesus sends out the 70. I want you to listen to what he says. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. We'll read about eight verses. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others, and he sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. Now look at this. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and receive, or, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So when Jesus sent out the 70, he explained to them explicitly, rely on what others give you to provide for your needs. And when somebody's willing to do that, stay in that house and let them continue to provide for your needs. Why? Because Jesus said, you're worthy of those wages. And so we get these two aspects of this idea of honoring in the scriptures when it comes to those who labor well. One of them is that they're to be thought of highly, they're to be esteemed, they should be able to serve in joy, which essentially means to enjoy what they're doing. I've shared this with you before. Out of the various churches that I've pastored, I've, I've loved doing it in each one, and I love the people in each one, but boy, this here and Renew has probably been the one that has been most meaningful to me and overwhelmingly the one that brings me the most joy. This is the most um, godly, and I don't say this to flatter you, but most mature body that I have ever had the privilege of shepherding. It brings a tremendous amount of joy to my life. While I may spend the bulk of my time doing IT work, which I love, this is what brings me the most joy. And so you make that easy. And that's what the scriptures command, that you ought to allow me to shepherd this church and Dustin to shepherd this church in a way that brings us a tremendous amount of joy, not causing us a lot of trouble. And so Paul says that that, that's what the Bible teaches. Now, financial provision for the one who ministers on behalf of God is reflected throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God mandated that the Levitical priests should be provided for by the tithes and offerings of the people. Jesus repeated this principle in the passage that we just talked about. 
Paul also addressed the topic in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 14, when he said, The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, Paul at the very end of that, verse 15, says he didn't take advantage of that, so it's not mandated that a shepherd or a pastor or an elder has to make his living by the gospel, but it says that the Lord says that that's permitted and that's okay. Paul just chose not to take advantage of that. I've chosen not to take advantage of that. I make the bulk of how I provide for my family through working with my hands. But you guys graciously honor me with a housing allowance, which helps to pay the bills. And that's much like what Paul did himself. He allowed the Philippians to care for his needs. He said, I know what it's like to be in want, to be rich at times. And so Paul worked with his hands, but then also allowed some of the gaps to be filled in by the generosity of the people. That's what he chose to do. That's what I've chosen to do. It's not mandated either way in Scripture. Now the real question, though, and this is what Paul answers for Timothy, is who should be given this double honor? He's very careful to say that there are two requirements for this. The first is they have to be individuals, elders, who rule well. Now that same phrase is used up in chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. It's also used in verse 12 of chapter 3. When describing the requirements for elders and deacons, they are to rule their households well. Here Paul says that those who should be considered worthy of double honor would be those elders who rule well other translations render this as lead well says they might be good leaders I think one translation says they should be able to direct the affairs of the church well so that's the first requirement that there ought to be elders that we can look at and say they are serving well as an elder the second requirement is that they should notice what it says in verse 17 the end of it work hard at preaching and teaching Work hard at preaching and teaching. The literal phrase is, especially those who labor at the word and teaching. Another way to translate that word especially, and I think I prefer this, is that is. In other words, is Paul saying, well, those who labor well, especially if they're good at the word, or is it that he says they ought to labor well, and then qualifies it, that is, or that means, those who labor at the word and teaching. I think that second rendering is the more appropriate rendering because elsewhere, in fact, we've already read one of the verses where it says that they ought to be handling the word. And so really, those who are considered worthy of double honor should be those elders who shepherd the church well by preaching and teaching the word. That is their first and primary responsibility. doesn't mean they don't have others. But if they fail at that... They're not worthy of double honor. They're not worthy of being esteemed highly. They're not worthy of being provided for financially. Now that may be a harsh statement, but that's the reality of it. The number one requirement of a shepherd is to feed the sheep, to protect them. That's the reality of it. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us here, through Paul, to Timothy. I mentioned watching this um, expose on Hillsong last night. It was interesting, there was a, I don't know if it was a, a woman or a man, that was, there was a guy, he was talking, he, he did a blog, and somebody, he actually wrote a book called Preacher and Sneakers. And it's, it's a fascinating blog, because what he would do, is he kind of got to thinking one day, he's like, you know, whenever I see a lot of these 
people that are associated with NAR and some of the big mega churches, it's interesting just looking at their sneakers because a lot of them are wearing these really expensive sneakers. Sometimes $800, but sometimes three and $4,000 for sneakers. And so he just started thinking, I'm just going to start posting these. And so he did. He created a little blog or whatever, and he would do it on his Instagram account. He'd just post pictures of their sneakers. And then it turned into, well, some of them are wearing some really expensive clothes too and so he posted a picture of Carl Lentz the pastor of Hillsong wearing a Louis Vuitton sweater $15,000 sweater and he just started posting this stuff online saying what's kind of going on with these people you know how were they able to afford this as pastors and shepherds of God's church and so anyway one of the that he was talking about that he talked about Carl Lentz and he said well the one thing we really know about Carl Lentz is people would almost salivate going to his church they were interviewing all these people that had been at, at Hillsong in New York for anywhere from a year to six, seven years and they talked about how it was all about Carl Lentz man I, I, to see him to watch him was mesmerizing and so one thing he said was you certainly don't go to Carl Lentz for and he used the phrase sound doctrine you went to see him for other reasons he was dynamic and engaging he would almost cry every sermon and people talked about that he was so real because he would cry every sermon you know and um, I don't say that to necessarily disparage him except that the one thing Carl Lentz did not do he didn't preach and teach the word He should not have been considered worthy of the high esteem that people gave him. People would line up for hours before the church service to go see him. You can go online, you can watch footage of people being turned away after waiting in line for three, four hours to get into the... I don't remember what the name of the venue was that they were meeting in in New York. It's right downtown. But the one thing he didn't do was to preach and teach the word. But yet he was esteemed so highly because of his sneakers and his skinny jeans and his fancy clothes that he would wear and how he was so real and so genuine. Takeaway, elders who serve well by working hard at preaching and teaching the word of God should be considered worthy of double honor. Those are the kind of people we should esteem. Now this is hard for me, and I mean this sincerely. To stand up in front of you and say that um, if I do my job, if I preach and teach well that you should esteem me, that's hard for me to say. Because I know who I am. I know my own struggles. I know I'm not perfect. But the reality of it is, the Word of God tells me that I should aspire to that. That is my goal. That is Dustin's goal. We want to preach and teach well. That is our number one responsibility here. And so I can say that I expect that you will at least give me some kind of honor and respect. And you people do. You certainly do. But that's a hard thing to tell Somebody, well, you should respect me, but that's what the scriptures tell us. I've talked with you before about the kind of people that you read, that you listen to, that you watch. That This ought to be the number one requirement. When you take that book and bring it into your home or read it, or when you sit down and you listen to that, that um, recording, or, or you watch somebody on television, or you listen in your car to your favorite preachers and teachers, this ought to be the number one thing. I should esteem them. If you're going to donate to them financially or ministry, this ought to be the requirement. Plain and simple. So that's the first requirement. That it's elders who rule well at preaching and teaching that ought to be considered worthy of your respect, that you should esteem, but that you should also financially invest in if necessary. How about the second principle? Well, elders are to be protected from false accusations. Look at verse 19. 
Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. He's talking about false accusations here primarily. This rule of not accepting an accusation unless there are two or three witnesses is not unique. The Bible actually affords this same protection for everybody. The Old Testament, a man could not be found guilty of sin unless it was evidenced by at least two or three other witnesses. That's right out of the Old Testament law. It was a way to protect people. You couldn't just make an accusation about, against somebody, your word against theirs, they found guilty, and then whatever the consequences are. The Bible said, no, there's got to be multiple witnesses to this. And it's something we're all afforded as believers. It's something we should, believe it or not, extend to the unsaved. Our justice system should be built on that. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus even tells us that the church should live by that rule. Remember what Jesus said? If there's somebody who sinned against you, the first expectation is that you confront them. Don't go blab to your friends, your neighbors. Oh, you won't believe what so-and-so did. In my years of ministry, I've had a number of instances where somebody from the church has approached me because somebody sinned against them and they've come to me first and they've wanted me to take care of it because I'm the shepherd. And I've had to say, well, have you approached them yet? (gasps) Well, that's what the Bible says. I can't get involved until you talk with them. And oh, by the way, before I can get involved, you need to also bring some other believers with you. And then, if things are still unresolved, come see me and the other elders, and we can get involved. That's the way the scriptures work. And so, what happens when somebody wants to accuse an elder? Well, Paul knows that elders are in a very difficult position. We can make enemies pretty fast. We might say something, teach something somebody doesn't like. Maybe we don't respond in a way that we should sometimes. Sometimes we sin, believe it or not. Mostly Dustin. But sometimes we sin. So even though this same protection is afforded to everyone, it is especially important when it comes to elders. Elders are expected to be above reproach. We get to stand up front here, which means everybody sees us. Right? It's a requirement for elders that we be above reproach. It's a very high standard. You know, you're not, even though, I have to be careful the way I say this, but God wants all of us to be above reproach, plain and simple, and you should strive for that as a believer. But nothing prevents you from walking in that door and sitting down in this seat if you're not above reproach. But it does prevent me from standing up here if I'm above reproach. It's a requirement. And so partly because of that, there also needs to be, I'll say, special protection sort of put in place. And again, it's not all that special because it's something that should be afforded to everyone. But when it comes to an elder, we have to be very, very careful that when somebody accuses that elder that there's not just a single accusation by one individual, but rather that there might be witnesses to that. Think about Paul for a minute. Paul was accused of all kinds of wrongdoing in his life, wasn't he? Like he was put to death for it. But even within the church, he wrote a whole entire letter, 2 Corinthians, because the Corinthians had been accusing him of all kinds of things he wasn't guilty of, and Paul had to write a letter to defend himself from their false accusations. So what happens? Now notice Paul does not say, don't receive an accusation, period. He says, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of additional witnesses. So he doesn't say you can't bring an accusation, but you have to be very careful about the way that you do it. There are some denominations and churches, even pastors, who regard pastors as untouchable. 
bringing any accusation against an elder violates his command. They quote passages like 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 22 and Psalm 105, which says, Do not touch my anointed! And, do, or, and uh, do my prophets no harm. I heard Kenneth Hagin one time say this in the pulpit. Touch not thy... You know, and he went on. Thy anointed. This is especially popular in Pentecostal circles. Churches associated with the new apostolic reformation. Um, I finished... In fact, Amy just bought me another book by Holly Pepic, which is... I read the, the book... Um, Counterfeit Kingdom, which is the most latest book she's written on the NAR movement, and she's got two others prior to that, and Amy bought me another one, which is a little more technical. She talks about this and addresses this in her book on how many of these um, prophets and apostles within the NAR, including Hillsong and Bethel, how they've continued to be involved with sin, um, and they teach their church to keep their hands off them, even when they do that kind of thing. Touch not thy anointed. I'm God's man. I remember one time where um, we had an issue with a, a pastor of another church and we brought up some of our concerns and one of the other elders said, well, but he's God's man. But what do you mean? We can't talk about what's happening? No, he's God's man. He's off limits. We can't touch God's anointed. This is backwards. Not what the scriptures teach. That was related to prophets that were prophesying correctly and accurately. It's not about pastors. They are not untouchable. They are not to be considered above reproach when they're not above reproach. Because we'll see that in Paul's next discussion here as you get on to the second principle, but I mean the third principle. We just have to be very careful when we accuse elders. We can't simply take somebody's word for it be based on gossip or rumor or speculation um, or to require multiple witnesses and the way that this kind of works out think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18 he says that somebody sinned against you you're supposed to bring you're supposed to approach them if they don't respond you're supposed to bring other witnesses he's not saying bring others that have seen them do it he's saying take them with you so that when you sit down and talk to them the second time now they can see the response so you're bringing those other people in to say, okay, this person sinned against me. You may not be aware of it, but I'd like you to come with me. I've already confronted them. They refuse to deal with it. I want you to now assess this. So when I sit down with them again, I want you to watch and participate and see if you agree that we've got a sin issue here that needs to be addressed. And that's how those witnesses learn what's going on. And they can help them to make an evaluation. And if they say, yeah, this brother or sister sinned against you, and this brother or sister is not addressing this properly, then you can go with those two witnesses or three witnesses to the elders and when the elders see, oh, it's not just your word, but these other witnesses have gone with you. They've participated. They've watched how this other person has responded and they agree that they're sitting there. It's not being addressed. Might be the same thing with a pastor. Maybe a pastor does something inappropriately to somebody, whether it's a sexual sin, maybe it's a abuse of some kind or maybe it's some financial stuff that's questionable and somebody discovers it it doesn't mean that if they're like well gee nobody else knows about it right now I can't do anything about it it's okay then take two or three with you after you've talked with them and have them help you evaluate it now bring that forward it's an investigation of sorts and so that's really what's laid down here with this idea of two or three witnesses is they've either seen it or you brought them into the process and helped them to evaluate it 
And now maybe they agree, and so that makes them witnesses to the behavior. So what's our takeaway with this? Well, very simple. We have to be very careful when accepting accusations of sin against an elder unless they can be substantiated. It's God's way of protecting his people from being attacked. And again, that's really something we ought to practice with everything. Isn't it interesting how we don't often do that? We just assume. Let's move on to the third one. What about elders who continue to sin? Well, the third principle is that elders who continue to sin, in other words, the accusation was true, they've been confronted and they refuse to deal with it biblically. It says that they're to be rebuked publicly. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Paul uses the present tense here. The context indicates he's referring to elders who continue to sin after they have been confronted. Now we know elders are not sinless. They're not perfect. Notice that's not one of the requirements. This is above reproach. You can be above reproach. You can sin and deal with it appropriately and still be considered above reproach because that's part of handling sin. Is it not? So he's not talking about being sinless here, but an elder who is found guilty of sin that is approached, challenged, confronted, and still continues in that behavior. That's what he's talking about here. You can turn here on your own, but Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his own struggle with sin. He says, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I don't want to do. That's the reality. First John tells us that if we say that we have not sinned, that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the reality of it. Okay. So as an elder, I can't stand up here before you and say that I don't sin. What I should be able to say is that when I sin, I deal with it appropriately. I deal with it biblically. We've told you before that you can approach us with anything, whether it's what we teach, how we behave, decisions we make. We're open to that, and we should be open to that. You ought to be able to come up and do that. We can see in this verse here, though, that there's a right way to do that, to take witnesses with you when you do that. Based on the first, or based on the list of requirements of elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, a biblical argument can be made that certain sins are worthy of disqualification. There's no question about that. I think about sexual sins, being physically or verbally abusive. Abuse of alcohol and drugs is pretty clear in that context. A household that's totally out of control and not manageable. There are certain things that, based on 1 Timothy 3, disqualify you from serving as an elder. So there are some sins that disqualify you from serving as an elder. I would argue that there are some sins that don't disqualify you automatically, but when confronted on them, you better deal with them, because if you don't deal with them properly, that does disqualify you. Does that make sense? We're not perfect. No pastor ever is. No shepherd ever is. But when it does occur, an elder is confronted and chooses not to deal with it appropriately, he's to be reproved publicly. Look back at verse 20 again. Those who continue in sin, he's talking about elders, rebuke in the presence of all. To rebuke there means to admonish, challenge, declare that what they are doing is wrong. He says here, notice, in the presence of all. Ouch! You know, if you're caught in the sin and you have to be approached... The Bible doesn't say we're supposed to rebuke you publicly in front of everyone, drag you up in front of the church and declare you're a sinner. But when it comes to elders who refuse, we're supposed to rebuke them publicly. He tells us why here. So that the rest, and I don't know if he's talking there about the rest of the elders, or if he's talking about the rest of the body, probably both. 
He's saying so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. There's a certain motivator in being shamed in front of people that should help us to curtail our sin. Now we don't shame people for that purpose. And again, he's talking about elders here. Elders are very public. They are up front. They are preaching and they are teaching. It makes sense that when they refuse to behave properly, they should be rebuked publicly. Why? Because they're an example up front. We've seen Paul tell Timothy to make himself an example. Paul himself said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. When that doesn't happen, people need to know. They need to be told, this elder has not behaved properly and he has refused our counsel. He has refused to be confronted. He has not dealt with the sin appropriately. And that should serve as a warning to not just the other elders, but the body of Christ in general. And I don't think it's all that remarkable that he uses the word fear here in verse 20. They should be afraid. Before moving on to the... Fourth principle, Paul cautions Timothy to apply these rules without bias. Look at verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and all his chosen angels. That's a pretty hefty list of witnesses, isn't it? I charge you in the presence of God, presence of Jesus Christ, and all of his angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Isn't that interesting? Why might Paul tell Timothy to be careful about how he applies these rules? I think it's pretty simple. Oftentimes there's bias and partiality in how we view others. When it comes to dealing with accusations against an elder, whether it's false or otherwise, we are to act justly and righteously, not allow our feelings or our admiration or our love for that individual color how we deal with the situation. Why is it that when somebody we don't like does something, we're much harsher in the way that we address them or deal with them and much quicker to accept the accusation than when it's somebody we really love or we hang out with or we really like. I'll admit that's hard. Part of it is because we know the person and we trust them and so we want to be careful. And then you might have somebody else over here like, man, I see that kind of behavior all the time. And so we're much more willing to accept it. But here's what's interesting. Just because somebody maybe had a pattern of something and is accused of something doesn't mean they're guilty of that. There might be a higher probability that they are, but it doesn't necessarily make it more true or not true. We have to be very careful that when we look at accusations of, of, when it comes to elders, that we just sort of set those biases aside and try to approach it rationally with justice, with a little bit of mercy and grace, but be very careful that we don't apply the rules differently depending on who they are. That's one of the things that you see in the NAR is that their people, their pastors, their elders are given all kinds of leeway and flexibility. In fact, when it comes to the prophecies, you know, the Old Testament makes it really clear that if you claim to be a prophet and you prophesy things that don't come true, you ought to be stoned. I'm not saying we should stone them today, but these guys write that off. They make false prophecies all the time in Pentecostal circles. Places like, or you know, people like um, uh, Brian Houston from... um, Bethel Church, he and his lead prophet, Fatun, have made all kinds of stuff that are untrue, that have never happened, and people continue to just write it off. Okay? Brian Houston was caught driving drunk. Why is he still, or, you know, he's finally sort of resigned, but why is he still given so much clout and authority within the Bethel movement, or I'm sorry, in the Hillsong movement, when the guy's caught drunk driving? This is crazy, you know? You know the name James McDonald? You know about that fall from grace? Most recently, he was just arrested in California 
for beating some woman so badly after a traffic stop that she's in the hospital or was in the hospital. You know, what's funny is that I saw very little reporting on that. I'm thinking, what? what? He was back preaching. There's a church down, I think it's in Texas, that was hosting all of his sermons again because, you know, he fell out of the ministry because of all the accusations and all the stuff that was proven, the financial mismanagement, the trying to hire the hitman, everything that was all brought out in the open. And what does he do? Moves to Texas and some church says, oh, we'll put him back in the pulpit and we'll just kind of, you know, and then he beats some woman nearly to death. I mean, this is nuts. You know, I mentioned Carl Lentz from Hillsong, New York. Most recently, he's been hired as a consultant for another church down in Texas. Like, the guy had an affair with multiple women. It's been something, before he took over at Hillsong, he had been accused of sexual inappropriate behavior with young women when he was a youth pastor at Wave Church. How did he ever make it to New York when they knew about that? Now again, I'm not trying to disparage these people, but when you, when you think about this, when you think about these things, they have applied... One rule to Carl Lentz, one rule to James McDonald, one rule to Brian Houston, and other rules to everybody else. We're not supposed to do that. And so he tells Timothy, be careful how you apply these principles. Apply them evenly, without bias, without partiality. You've got to be very careful with that. We have a tendency to do that sometimes. To take away because elders are held to a higher standard. When they sin and refuse to repent, they should be rebuked publicly as a warning to others, without partiality. We may say, man, we love you, brother. But the reality of it is, this is what the Bible says. We're not going to treat you differently simply because we hang out with you and have dinner with you. Or because we like the pants you wear. Or the fancy shoes. Or the fact that you're a really, really cool preacher when you get up and you preach and you cry. Can't do that. That's distasteful to the Lord. Plain and simple. So when it comes to Dustin and me, you can't treat Dustin differently than you treat me because you like him. Okay? Not going to work that way. Last principle that Paul shares with us. The Bible says elders are not to be appointed hastily. Look at verses 22 through 25. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. For the sins of some men are quite evident. Going before them to judgment for others, their sins follow later. Likewise, also, the deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. What is Paul's point here? Aside from verse 22 or 23, which we'll get to in a second, Paul's point here, this fourth principle, is that elders are not to appoint it hastily. We shouldn't grab onto these people quickly, with haste. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, Paul warned Timothy not to appoint new converts as elders. Why? They might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Verse 10 of chapter 3, he stated that demons must, or I'm sorry, deacons must first be tested before being allowed to serve in that role. He says, test deacons. Don't just accept them. Test them first. Paul follows the same principle here, cautioning against appointing elders quickly. If they're too harsh in appointing elders, or too hasty in appointing elders, that's the phrase laying hands on there, then Timothy would run the risk of sharing responsibility for the sins of others. Isn't that interesting? When we appoint an elder into a church, and we do it too hastily, and that elder is guilty of sin, we now become participants in that sin. Is that nuts? That's the reality, though. I think about 
you know, Carl Lentz, it was interesting the number of people in this expose that were talking. I mean, you could see how they were wounded by him being put into the pulpit like he was. And the reason he was given that position is because he went to the college in Australia for Hillsong and met Brian Houston. And Brian Houston was looking for somebody to lead the Hillsong movement in the United States. And when he saw Carl Lentz, he was blown away. Look at this guy. This is a rock star. Look at him. And grabbed onto him. Apparently didn't do his research. (laughs) to see what kind of character he really had because there were some other accusations against him at the time. Grabbed onto him and he became his man in the United States and Hillsong exploded here. In fact, they were bringing in more money in New York than Hillsong in Australia. And they were bringing in over $100 million a year just in revenue from their music and other things. And there were some within Hillsong that began to think of Carl Lentz as the head of Hillsong and not Brian Houston, the guy that really started it all. That's how popular... And it was because he was this magnetic personality, but they grabbed onto him quickly, and again, he had already been guilty of a number of things before they put their hands on him. What does that tell us? Brian Houston and others are guilty of his sin as well. That's what it tells us here. That when you too hastily put somebody in this position... You can become guilty of their sin when you do that. Now, it's not saying that if you do your due diligence and everything is looked at and you're very careful and you're very slow to do that and you take your time and that elder happens to sin. It's not saying, oh, you're now guilty of that sin. It's the idea of placing your hands too quickly and too easily on somebody that hasn't been tested, proven themselves. He tells us two practical reasons why here. He says, some men's sins are apparent while others are not. Look at verses Verse 24 again. The sins of some men are quite evident. That means that some you can look at and you just know. This is a sinful man. Maybe he's hot-tempered. Maybe he's got some womanizing issues. Maybe there's some other things that you go, yeah, it just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Can't put him on the elder board. But then he goes on and he says, for others their sins follow after. Meaning they're not quite as apparent. Sometimes it takes a while to see somebody's character. Sometimes it takes a little while to see what they're doing. Have you ever met somebody that you, your first impression of them was, they're awesome, and then the more you got to know them, as things start to develop, all of a sudden it's like, you know, maybe they're not the person that I thought of. Some people's sins are evident at the very beginning. Some take a little while to figure out. Okay? Sometimes it happens in dating relationships where a woman finds out the guy's not really who he claimed to be because while he was wooing her, he was on his best behavior, but a little bit later, now things start to change, right? And so one of the reasons, the practical things here is that Paul says the reason you shouldn't hastily appoint somebody is because sometimes their sins aren't quite so evident up front. So be very careful. But the other principle here, the other thing he says is that sometimes... Their good works are very similar to that. Some men's good deeds are readily apparent right up front, but sometimes it takes a while before you go, you know, this person really is a good person. Maybe they don't impress you right out of the gate, but the more you get to know them, you begin to see, no, they are people of a good heart, good behavior. Maybe their goodness isn't right up front. I've seen that with with guys that I went to seminary with who maybe right up front you were just kind of like, well, that's interesting, he's a little quirky, a little different here in seminary, you know, but in the end you really get to know him, you're like, man, they love the Lord, they are committed, they're hard workers. And so Paul tells us, 
you need to be very careful when it comes to appointing elders. Don't be too hasty because sometimes their sins aren't quite as evident and show up a little bit later. But sometimes even their good deeds take a while before they manifest and you see those good deeds. That's all good wisdom for us. I think about years ago, you know that Steve Schmeckel worked alongside me for a number of years. Steve was somebody from, he's a best friend from up in Wisconsin. I went to college with him. And uh, I was getting just crushed at work. We had 11 offices, 40 remote offices. I was trying to do training sessions for realtors, but they asked me to take over all the IT stuff for, for Chicago Title. We had 300 employees, and I was just getting crushed. And I went to my boss and said, I, I need help. I can't, I can't do all of this by myself. This is just too much. So he said, well, I'll hire somebody. I said, well, great. Make me a part of the process. And he's like, no, I think I can handle this. He's an accountant. doesn't know anything about IT. I'm like, oh, no. Well, the next thing I know, this guy shows up. His name is Hyder. And um, initially out of the gate, it seemed okay. He was pretty tech savvy, you know. But I think it was just a couple of weeks and I'm realizing this, this is a disaster. Because the guy wasn't showing up. He wasn't doing things right. And to be real honest, it created more work for me because he never did things the way he was told to do them. He always had his own way. And I'd have to go back and fix it all the time. So now... This guy's causing me more work. Well, I went to my boss and I said, this is not working out. You need to get rid of this guy. He's like, I can't. He's Iraqi. And we're right in the middle of the Iraq war. He's like, if I do that, we're going to get sued. I got to, you know, like, oh no, what are we going to do, you know? And So I said, well, you're going to have to hire somebody else then. And I said, this time, would you allow me to be a part of the process? And he's like, no, I got this. I'm like, oh no. So he announced he had found a woman he hired. And I'm like, oh no, I don't. I, I don't know anything about this person. It's not that she was a woman. It's that I didn't know anything about her. Well, she didn't show up the first day at work. So I went back in his office and I said, okay, Hyder was a disaster. This woman never showed up. You really have to let me make the next choice. And he's like, well, what do you have in mind? And I mentioned Steve Schmeckel. And he said, he has no IT experience. Zero. And I said, yeah, but I know him. I can teach him anything he needs to know and he'll get it done. All I need is somebody that I can go, go to this and I know it'll get done and I won't have to babysit. Well, he was real reluctant. He's like, I don't know. I think I should look. I said, no, you've already failed twice. So he went reluctantly and hired Steve Schmeckel and he worked alongside me for 10 years and he was a dream employee. Because even though he's still doing IT today and he's learned a lot, but... You know, he just, he gets it done. He just does what he's told. You don't have to babysit him, you know? He was smart. He, people loved working with him, you know? Sometimes that's the way it is. You know, even when it comes to elders. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of time. My boss was very hasty in hiring Hyder. He was very hasty to hire this woman with a great resume. He didn't know much more about him. I knew a lot about Steve. Because I had known Steve for years. I wasn't hasty when I asked for him to be hired. I knew him. That's the way it should be when it comes to elders. Takeaway, time is often the best indicator of whether or not somebody is ultimately qualified to serve as an elder. It really is. Time is often the best indicator, which means we can't be too quick. I would argue the same thing when it comes to who we listen to, who we read, who we watch the blogs, the things you... All of that stuff. Who is it that you allow to have input into your life when it comes to teaching and sharing the Word of God with you? These rules ought to apply. Maybe they aren't elders, but it's still the same principle. You are allowing them to, in some respects, shepherd you. And all of these things should apply. One last thing, and I'll close on this. You might have mentioned I jumped over verse 23. You're all probably dying to know, why does Paul stick that in? 
Don't know. He tells Timothy to take a little bit of wine with his stomach. I suspect the reason might be because Paul had made a comment in chapter 3 about not being a drunkard. And in Paul's day, um, it was pretty clear that alcohol was used to deal with some stomach issues. They had bacteria in their water and other things. And oftentimes, based on what we know from other writings and stuff, that alcohol was used to help with some of that. And it appears that Timothy had some stomach issues, some digestive issues. And so it sounds here that Paul is sort of trying to quiet Timothy's, maybe his fear, well, I can't do the alcohol thing because can't be a drunkard, etc. And Paul is basically, what he's thinking about elders here, goes, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> Timothy, do yourself a favor, take a little bit of alcohol to help that stomach issue. That's probably what he's doing here. Um, Paul's that way sometimes. So something pops into his head, ADHD, there it is. <laughs> Might as well write it while I'm thinking it. And so he's probably trying to help Timothy here. Just, be, you know, because what we know of Timothy was he was a committed individual, loved the Lord, everything else. And he may have been a little more careful about, well, I want to avoid any appearance of being a drunkard or drinking too much. Go ahead, Timothy. Have a little bit to help with the stomach. It's okay. It's interesting because that might be a good rule for us, too. Sometimes when we deal with elders, it's black and white, you know, a little bit of grace, a little bit of mercy, right? And he extends that here, I think, to, to Timothy. But again, I think this is a great passage because it reminds us um, of, of not just the qualifications of elders, but when it comes to stuff like this, they're not perfect. We need to hold their feet to the fire. We need to be careful when we accuse. Make sure that we can back that up. And then expect them to deal with it appropriately when they sin. If they don't, it's time to bring some attention to it. Be very careful who we place our hands on. Be very careful who we allow up here. Be very careful who we allow into our lives that shepherd us through our writing or through writings and, re- and everything else, you know. Be very, very careful. But also the idea of highly esteeming and then where you give your money, if, whether it's here at Renew for the stuff that we do and the housing allowance that you provide or the teaching, the, the honorarium that you provide with Dustin and Dave when they teach, or when you give to ministries financially knowing that it goes to your favorite Bible teacher or other things. We need to be very careful with those things. Amen?